If I had to boil it down to one word, I would say vision, right? I want to see your vision for the for the game. Like I want to see what it is, right? What what and if it aligns with like what we want to do, then boom, we're well, let's talk, right? But that that's what it is at the end of the day. Welcome to Find Blueprints, an important part of the Fiction First Network. Here in our metaphorical studio, we interview tabletop role-playing game designers working in the Forge in the Dark space and beyond. I'm Justin, he, him. And I'm Nichelle, she, her. And we'll be your hosts for today's episode, Playing with Fire. Today, we sit down with our guest, Ray, to talk about their work publishing games under the label Mythopoeia. Welcome, Ray. Hi, everyone. Good to be back. My name is Ray, he, him pronouns, and I am a designer, writer, publisher of The Wild Sea and CBR plus PNK. Ray, my first question for you is, uh, we're talking about your publishing company. How do you pronounce it? Mythopia. Mythopia. It's, it's, a, it's a problem. It's a very common problem that we've actually discussed internally. We might be going for a rebrand sometime down the line in the immediate near-term future. Who knows? It's, it's a mouthful. The good news is it's very easy SEO to, to get to the top of. The bad news is it's very difficult to spell, very difficult to pronounce, very difficult to remember. It's recognizable, you know, when you see it, you know what it is. And you're right, it's very Googleable. That's true. It is very recognizable. I think that we might be, well, I don't want to say in case somebody is listening and decides to be like, well, that's a great name. Let me go and register all the domains and trademarks for that because why not? Uh, but rebrand incoming sometime soon. Ooh. Until that time, we're still going to be talking about Mythopia and specifically what you do for tabletop game designers, yourself and otherwise. But first, we're going to want to learn a little bit about yourself. Now, you've been on here before, but we ourselves recently did a little rebranding. And so we might have some new listeners. For people who are not familiar with you and your work, could you tell me about yourself and your own introduction to the tabletop game space? I was introduced specifically to Blades in the Dark around 2015 or so, and I was introduced by a gentleman named Joseph Vandal, who longtime Blades fans will know as one of the cartographers and graphic designers on the final book. So when Blades in the Dark was in beta, Joseph showed me the rules, and I had been a longtime traditional Dungeons and Dragons player, a relapse player, or I don't know if relapse is the right word, but I wasn't playing at the time. And when he showed me the rules, my mind was completely blown because the idea of an improvisational fiction-first game where the system supports the improvisational and the fictional aspects of it rather than, say, hit points or any of the old traditional kind of stuff that you would track in a role-playing game was completely mind-blowing. I could see the potential for that right away. And I wanted to design a game right away, but it took a couple of years because I was busy writing comic books and it was very difficult to understand. I had the rule set, but I hadn't played Blades in the Dark and I knew what it could be theoretically. But as we all know, Blades is a very complicated system. It's very hard to wrap your mind around. So over the ensuing couple of years, I would go back to Blades Every couple of months, I would try to hack a little bit more. I would go on the various communities. I think there was a Google 
whatever the defunct Google platform was at the time. I don't even remember what it's called anymore, but I would go on there, see what people were cooking up, try to cook up something myself, inevitably not get very far because I had a hard time understanding how the rules interacted with each other on a module per module basis. And I had a really hard time finding in-person games in my local community. I live in Los Angeles. And at the time, there weren't just that many indie games being run publicly, at least. So this sort of continued on for a number of years until in 2019, that winter, in December specifically, I said to myself and my partner, you know what, this is going to be the year. 2020 is going to be the year that we really tackle RPGs in a real way. I'm going to dive in. I'm going to hack this thing. I'm going to understand it. I'm going to do as much as I can to play RPGs, to understand RPGs, and we're going to go from there. And luckily, not luckily, but as fortune would have it, that happened to be the year COVID happened. Um, So right as COVID was happening, I was already sort of making my way through the community. I was talking to people on Discord in the Blades in the Dark server, as well as the forums and on Reddit and all these different places. And I was doing drafts and suddenly had a bunch of free time on my hand and sort of got even more involved. And at that point, I got involved in the Hacked in the Dark network, now rebranded as the Fiction First network, and really just tried to engross myself as much as possible. And I've been here ever since. And we love you. Um, <laughs> oh, love you too. And I'm curious, you mentioned you have published and produced comic books in the past. Was that work similar to what you're doing now with Mythopia, or would you say that there was a distinction? Definitely a distinction. So the comic books, I am both the creator as well as the publisher, and I guess that would be my creative professional origins. So digging a little bit deeper into my background, I was a art school kid. I went to film school at NYU, and once I graduated, I worked in entertainment for a little bit. And I absolutely despised it because there are some really terrible people in entertainment and it's very exploitative. So I was making very little money, working very long hours for very nasty people. And I thought to myself, is this it? Is this is this going to be my life? And I sort of had a early 20s kind of existential crisis. And I realized that I wanted to focus on my own work creatively and i wanted to do anything possible to get those works out rather than work on things for other people so i made a pivot i decided to focus on writing and after focusing on writing for a couple of months and getting some scripts under my belt i thought okay what is the best way i can get these works made and real with the resources that i had And I didn't have very many resources, but comics is a resource low medium. I mean, you need an artist, you you need a couple of artists, and you need to put in the work. And it's a lot of work, but relatively speaking, compared to film and animation, it's 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 pretty cheap and it's pretty pretty low key. So that's the path I decided to pursue. That happened to coincide with the advent of Kickstarter as a comics platform. And so I was observing that from a distance and thinking, hey, maybe I should give that a try. So 
launched my first Kickstarter in 2014 and found way more success than I thought I ever would. And it seemed like a, a game changer. It was a game changer at the time and made me realize, okay, I could really do this thing seriously and be able to get the funds to do it. So once I did that first Kickstarter, I had the means to keep going and did a couple of more issues, more Kickstarters every year, launched a couple of new series, and then slowly made my way back into RPGs. And I like to say that overall, my creative career has kind of been just retracing the steps of my childhood, my teenage years. So I'm just trying to do everything that I love to do as a as a kid, basically. Like, I love comics. I love games. Um, hopefully one day I'll get back to movies and television and video games and all of that stuff as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And for those of you who have not checked out the two prominent comics by Mythopia, it's called Skies of Fire and Glow, and they are absolutely hands down breathtakingly beautiful. Like Ray did a, a fantastic job with the writing as well as figuring out who would do the artwork and everything for it. So definitely a little mini plug here. If you have not checked them out, definitely do. What made you move from comics into being more of a publisher for other creators and designers? Right. So that was a very serendipitous thing to happen. So I was really trying to make a Skies of Fire RPG. That was the goal. And we were going to do a Hacked in the Dark system with Skies of Fire. And I actually completed, along with some other people, we, we did like three or four full versions of that game sticking pretty close to the SRD, as most people do their first time out, and just sort of reskinning Blades in the Dark as much as possible to this new setting, and learned a whole bunch doing that. But in doing that, I realized that the, the distance between where I wanted to be in terms of like a, a final thing to release and where I was was still really, really, really large. So I had to make like a lot of games and, and get a lot more experience to to even get there. So in the process of getting that experience, that involved designing a lot of small games. We released a uh, Zine Quest 3 project called Love Balloon, which was really fun. Um, kind of a story game take. We did one called Pro Patra Mori. We also did like, I don't know, 12 or so really, really small games, one pagers, 20 pager booklets. Uh, that you can find on our itch, actually, most of them. And we were designing in 2020, like a game, a game a month, a game every two weeks, almost. It was quite a rapid clip. And we were learning a lot. We were creatively filled with ideas. And along with that, I was playtesting a lot of people's games. I actually playtested Justin's Moth Light. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I met a lot of cool people and had such a great time playing that as well. Um, and I was just like so open to all sorts of RPGs and all sorts of communities. And one particular game that I noticed on Reddit at the time was one called The Wild Sea. And I noticed it because it's unlike other postings on Reddit. When Felix, the designer, was asking for playtesters, he actually got responses. He actually got like 20 or so responses on these threads. Normally, when a designer goes on those forums asking for playtesters, they get like two responses, right? If any at all. 
So I was like, what what is this thing? That's pretty interesting. I opened up the quick start and it was it was really cool. Like the art was really cool, the world was really cool, and it was based off of a Forged in the Dark chassis. It's not called Forged in the Dark, but it had the same resolution system, dice pool D6, one to three failure, four five complications, six full success. So immediately I recognized the DNA on that. And so I thought maybe this game's worth checking out. I playtested it and had a great time with the designer Felix and another player. And it was just a one shot. Didn't think much of it. But a couple of weeks after that, Felix came back to me on Discord and asked if I was Ray Chow, the writer and creator of Glow, the comic. And I was like, yeah, that's that's me. And he was pretty happy because he was an original backer of Glow. And Glow was one of the chief inspirations of the Wild Sea, which you can see in its DNA in various forms. For instance, it's a post-fall world. Glow is a post-fall comic. Glow has a heavy emphasis on the Nymerian magical language. And Felix is an avid conlanger as well. And languages feature very heavily in the Wild Sea. And he developed his own script for Losaur, the common language of the Wild Sea. So all of those were kind of aspects that you could kind of trace its lineage back to Glow. So when he told me that, I was like, oh, yeah, that, that kind of, that's cool. That kind of makes sense. And he started asking me, you know, just creative questions, publishing questions as it pertained to crowdfunding. And I was just very open at the time, too, because when something like that happens, when there's a connection outside of just a connection, when there's kind of a third link to it, I usually take that as a sign from the universe or whatnot to look a little bit closer into it. So I just kind of asked him, I was like, well, are you looking for a publisher? Because maybe this is something that we can work on together. And he said, yeah, maybe. And we continued the conversation and eventually decided to go in on it together via crowdfunding. And um, the rest is history, I guess. Awesome. Thank you. And uh, I think that with that, we're solidly within the main topic territory here of tabletop publishing, because I've checked out Wild Sea and Wild Sea is a really beautiful book. I think people picked it up, they'd be kind of shocked at how large uh, and full of beautiful art it is, as well as just being a really interesting and unique game. So you you definitely chose correctly in terms of like your first big, you know, 200 page plus book to create. What were the challenges of creating something like that versus what you had previously created by yourselves in terms of more zines, smaller games and that kind of a thing? Right. So The Wild Sea is is a huge, huge, trendy, traditional indie book. It's 368 pages. It's landscape full color. It has over close to 200, maybe 300 unique art assets within it. It was very, very challenging. It, it was nothing was was for certain except for our vision of the project. So when Felix and I agreed to work together when I agreed to publish The Wild Sea. We had a quick start document that was about 100 pages long, black and white, the same art style, same kind of general layout, three column layout. My pitch to him was, if we're going to do this, I want to make the biggest, most beautiful RPG book ever. We got close to accomplishing that. I think we really achieved quite a bit with the Wild Sea. And it certainly cost a lot, not just in terms of financials, but in terms of our time and all of the things that we sacrificed to get to that point. So the team for the Wild Sea was relatively large. We had 
I believe, four to five artists working on the projects, uh, a layout artist, Felix, myself, um, sensitivity reader. We had we had a whole team. There's a lot of credits at the back of the book, a lot of moving parts to the book. And figuring out what it was going to look like was a very, very large challenge. So two specific anecdotes from that. The first was we decided to make it a landscape book, which is a very controversial decision. A lot of people don't like landscape books, uh, especially RPG books. And we personally hadn't seen a well-executed landscape book before in the RPG space. So we were kind of hesitant to go with that. But at the same time, the format that Felix had developed for his quick start was in a landscape format. So that was one of the major deciding factors. And we wanted to highlight the beautiful world through the beautiful art that we had. And we thought that landscape would be one of the best ways to do that. In order to create a landscape book, especially imagining what a physical product actually looked like, I took every single hardcover RPG source book I have in my bookshelf and I laid them out. I measured them all. And then I measured out what the theoretical dimensions would be. Originally, we were going to have 11 by 8.5 on either side. And when I laid that out, I realized how freaking huge that would be and how unwieldy that would be. So I took pictures, I had this conversation with Felix, and we decided to chop off an inch on either side. So the final format is 10 by 8.5 landscape. And that ended up being really, really great. But there was no way of knowing for sure what that would feel like until we actually got the books, right? So that was always kind of like a big unknown. But once we got the books, we, we think we made the right decision because it's a nice size. It can kind of still fit in your hands. It's easy to flip through. It's usable at the table. But at the same time, we do have this landscape style that, you know, it, it stands out on the bookshelves and out there. And it is able to showcase the art in a really, really beautiful way. So that was a major challenge. And, and one of a million major challenges that we had with the book. Layouts was another big one. So Felix, like many RPG designers, was laying out the project by himself. And he did a fantastic job doing it. It was part of the overall presentation. But I knew that in order to take it to another level, we wanted to bring someone on board to handle that aspect and to add their flourishes to it. So early on, a gentleman named Blue Parslings, Leo Chung, was interested in the project and Felix showed me his work and I was like, dude, you get you gotta get this guy on board the project. He is mint. He's absolutely mint. Like he's gonna take it to another level. So I had to convince Felix of that. And he was a bit hesitant because you know he was like, well I, I know how to do layouts myself. Like why why can't I just do it myself? And I had to be like, just just trust me, man. Just like just just it's it's gonna be great. And then once he was on board we had to figure out what that relationship looked like and what the actual book looked like on top of that. So the workflow we came up with was Leo initially came up with eight templates or so of what the layouts could be on each page. And we had to geometrically block it out. So we had to abstract it, right? We'd be like, okay, so let's get kind of the backgrounds done and sort of like the layouts, but like, let's where art would be, let's just put like a big square there or a big triangle there, right? Because the best laid out books, in my opinion, consider the composition first. Consider the composition of the pages 
put the words to match the composition and then get the artwork commissioned to fit in that specific frame. And I was telling Felix this early on, and he definitely like got the message, but at the same time, we had all these art assets already, right? So it was like, okay, how do we make them fit onto the page that we have? And then what's more, we don't even know what this book is going to look like. So at a certain point, we had borders for for the we were like let's go with borders because if we have a, a thin border at the edge of either page on the left and right hand side you'll be able to easily delineate what section of the book you are, you're in right so the you know the firefly the gm guide will be like green and like the actual combat rules will be orange and the montage rules will be yellow so to speak right like you've, you've seen some rpgs that have that where each section is is color coded so we thought okay great let's do that and then we got some initial tests back from leo and it looked okay, but one big problem was we were running out of white space as a result, right? Because we were contracting the amount of usable page we had for the words and for everything else. It was just making everything feel very confined. So we literally had like, I don't know, three or four rounds of this where we would get layouts and we would kind of powwow online and we would just be looking at this PDF and thinking, what's wrong with this? And how do we fix this? How do we make this look actually like good? How, how do we get from this to like something that's good? And just like scrutinizing every aspect from like, you know, the margins to like the spaces between the every word, right? Like the kerneling, like all of that super, super technical layout design stuff and just trying to make it work, right? Because your eye knows immediately if something is working or not. But then when it's not working, you got to go into analysis mode and be like, all right, what what is actually wrong with this? And and how do we get this to a point where it just reads as awesome as opposed to like, well, this looks okay, but right. And so we were at that point for large, large chunks of the project where it was like, okay, it looks okay. And then on top of that, Felix was drafting um, new rules at the same time and had filler art. So there were months and months and months of the project where we had to have faith. I had to have faith that it would all kind of come together, you know, and it, it's with a, with a project that size, it, it doesn't come together until really the last 10%, 15%. And until then, it, it looks it looks kind of messy, to be honest, like everything looks like a construction site, right? It just doesn't look like a finished product. There's a lot of faith that that needs to go into that. If you're a backer of the Wild Sea, you can kind of see what I mean, too, because we, we were very transparent with our project. And not only that, but we released three separate play test versions. So once at launch, once right at the close of the Kickstarter, and once about, I think, eight months in or 10 months in when we were more or less rules locked. And we were testing one major iteration of the rules where we changed the core skills and we wanted feedback from that. And that version, the the playtest was an absolute mess. I didn't even want to publish it, to be honest. I was like, we shouldn't release this. This is so messy. Like there's so much filler art. There's so many typos. But Felix was like, I really need the, the feedback to see if this new skill system is going to work. So let's just do it. I know it's not going to be perfect. But you can see basically the jump from that playtest D to our 1.0 is incomparable. It's it's insane how much of a difference there was. And I'm telling you, largely throughout development, it looked like playtest D. Like internally, that's that's what that's what the game looked like. It it just looked like a hot mess most of the time. But I think my job as publisher 
was to be sort of that guiding light for the project and be like, don't worry, this is the vision and believe in the vision. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. And so long as we trust the process and we have that vision in mind, we're going to get to what we think this project can be. And I, I think we did it at the end of the day. Yeah, it became a bigger project and a bigger Kickstarter than I think that either you or Felix were expecting. And so you start with this Kickstarter that essentially blows up a little bit. And then you're like, okay, well, now we need to deliver. And I remember having some conversations with Felix during some of the editing and writing process of when he was going through everything for Playtest D. And that poor man was working so much on on like, I need to rewrite this, or I need to go through that. Like there was a ton of moving parts, but also during that time period, the pandemic hit and a lot of things shut down, especially with supply chain and inflation and whatnot. How did that impact this Kickstarter and your experience as a publisher? Because I know that that definitely added a, a lot of time and a lot of additional challenges on top of an already new project. It was very challenging, very, very, very challenging. 2022 has probably been the most difficult year of my life, to be honest, from from a professional standpoint, definitely. And a large part of that was dealing with these supply chain inflation related issues. So a kind of brief history of the project. When we launched in November of 2020, it was the early stages of the pandemic, right? We had been in lockdown for, I believe, like five months at that point, something like that. And things were kind of good economically. The stock market was way up. There was a lot of money floating out. A lot of people were very liquid at the time. Crowdfunding was up tremendously. Crowdfunding saw a huge boost in the early days of the pandemic. And e-commerce was up tremendously as well. People were buying tons of stuff online in the early days of the pandemic. So times were good, even though times were bad from what was happening. Times were actually good in 2020, November. And we were basing our estimates off of the cost then. And we knew that we had a production Kickstarter, which meant that it was going to be a long, long time before we fulfilled. But even with my experience crowdfunding, I could never have predicted what would happen afterwards. So what happened afterwards was the cost of manufacturing went up, up, up for a number of reasons. We started running out of various supply. The, the main reason is because of COVID overall. But the secondary reason right under that, the, the main way that COVID impacted things was the ports. So at the port of Long Beach, for instance, anytime someone went down with COVID, they basically just like took off work, right? For like forever, however long they had to self-quarantine and whatnot. And this was happening left, right, and center. And that led to port shutdowns. So people just weren't working at the ports, not just the ports in the United States, but ports all over the world, right? Because of COVID, because of, of the infectious nature of the disease. So when you have ports shutting down, you don't have people unloading stuff or loading stuff. And when you don't have people unloading stuff and loading stuff, that leads to a huge backup. And that increases the demand for all of that stuff, which increases the prices for all of that stuff. So ocean freight basically like 
quadrupled, tripled. It, it went insane, basically, the, the rates for, for these massive boats and these shipping containers. And that, if you think about it, impacts every aspect of commerce, of trade, of the world, period, because everything comes from a boat. Everything, right? Like literally everything has to travel by boat to, to get to where you are in our in our global economy. And so that just made things rise exponentially in price. And then you had other reasons like paper shortages, which you know obviously impact the, the print industry, which we're a part of. And these things contributed to the bottom line for, for me was our estimates from 2019 pre our our 2020 November estimates. From then to when we actually bought the books and got them on a boat, the prices basically went up like three or four times. They just absolutely skyrocketed. And there was no way to predict that whatsoever. And that was that was tough, man, because, you know, we were operating under the assumption we had this much budget and that we were, you know, it's going to cost this much. And all of a sudden, your your main line item, the printing of the books goes up like three, four times. And then you're like, well, wait a minute uh what do we do as a result how how do we respond to that and um it was devastating to be honest uh we ended up thinking we would take a profit out of the project when it was all said and done and we ended up spending every dime that we had just getting the book made and we really didn't have any leftover for anything really we almost didn't go to gen con as a result of that we applied for gen con last december got in on a marketing fellowship, which is this really cool thing where where they showcase new publishers to Gen Con, they give them a bigger booth, all of that stuff. And we almost had to say no because it was just too expensive. So that that was insane. That was the main thing. Uh, we also had delays uh, in ocean freight that a lot of people were dealing with. So I had I had delays on several ends. So at the beginning of the year 2022, I had a bunch of outstanding projects to fulfill, right? And I had them ready to go more or less, but we were also switching to third-party logistics for the first time. And for the viewers who aren't familiar, third-party logistics is when you use a warehouse to fulfill your stuff, basically, as opposed to doing it yourself. And we were using a couple of well-known in the crowdfunding space fulfillment houses. And we thought, okay, it's all good. We got to get our stuff to them and then they'll be able to move us along. But the problem was we weren't the only ones delayed, right? This was happening to everybody, every single board game project, every single game project. We're all using the same warehousing people or whatnot. And I do okay in comics, right? I usually have 1,000 to 1,500 physical uh, orders to fulfill per campaign. But that is a small, small potato compared to some board game projects, right? Some board game projects have like 5,000, 10,000 orders to fulfill, physical things to fulfill sometimes. So when you're a warehouse and everybody is delayed and everyone gets undelayed at the same time, who are you going to fulfill first? You're going to fulfill the guy who's got 1,500 orders? You're going to fulfill the guy who's got 10,000 orders? So that, that was the scenario I found myself in constantly, 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 constantly. And it was... It was tough. Uh, so dealing with that, dealing with uh, the freight, ocean freight taking forever, dealing with the rising costs, it was, it was bad. It was, it was really bad. It was very existential at times. Um, I really thought like this might be it several times over the past year for for my business and what I do. And I've never felt that way. To be, I've maybe I've been lucky or naive or too small scale to even feel that way. But it was the first time in my creative career where I thought. 
oh, this could all just come crashing down and <laughs> and and be nothing and just just be be a bunch of ruins at the end of the day. But I mean, we we made it through. It, it worked out in the end of the day, but it was it was very very challenging. Moving your business from you know one medium into multiple others during a pandemic that has never been seen before on this type of scale and not knowing the impact. I mean, that's a pretty major step to take and you're still here and you're still helping designers create and you're still publishing and that's fantastic. So take that as a bit of encouragement. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. There, it, it's, I'm, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to have the experience to, to learn from it. And I think one thing that I take away from, from all of this is that Number one, all artists are entrepreneurs, right? If you're if you're doing art, you're an entrepreneur because inherently creation is entrepreneurship. Number two is that when it comes to being an entrepreneur, when it comes to being an artist, at the end of the day, it's just about who's like too stubborn to quit, honestly, or put it another way, who 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 survived, you know? <laughs> like it's not really there's so many forces outside of your control and like you just kind of deal with it. And I've also gotten a lot of perspective since all this has happened to me. Like I checked in with one of my mentors who I've been talking to recently and he was telling me about how he scaled a business to $100 million in revenue within like 10 years of its existence. But he was underwater the last year or so and just heavily in debt. That blew my mind because... I just had trouble, you know, managing like $100,000, right? Like $100 million and to be in debt for that. So, but that gave me a lot of perspective too, because I'm like, oh, okay, well, just, you know, everybody feels that, you know what I mean? And there, it's just, it's part and parcel with the experience. Maybe it's like, if you, if you're not feeling like you're going to be underwater, maybe try harder. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. That was like kind of my takeaway, you know, I was like, oh man, I have no idea how to even deal with that. Um, that he's telling me about. And I just went through, I thought a lot, but relatively speaking, it's not a lot. One thing I'm curious about is learning about this history with Wild Sea and with your own past before that. What is it you're looking to do now? Are you in the active process of finding your next project? Is there anything you look for in projects that you like to support? Yeah, so we're always looking for projects to support. It has to fit in with our, our, our brand writ large. So Mythopia means to, to world build. And we really take pride in our attention to detail when it comes to what we put forth. So we try really, 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 really hard. You know, like we, we're trying to do things that are of the utmost quality and of uh, have the, the utmost detail to them, the rich background and lore, all of that stuff. So that's like kind of what we're, we're looking for when it comes to projects is people who kind of share that vision and ambition for their projects. As far as like what we're doing next, that's a good question. I think in the immediate term for the next year or so, what I am going to be trying to do is sort of stabilize a lot of our channels, get more into retail, kind of promote our brand as a whole, get get people more well-known, promote the Wild Sea, promote CBR plus PNK, our other game. And I know it's it's pronounced it's pronounced Cyberpunk, but it's I just always add the plus. I always say Cyberpunk just for fun. Oh, that's a great way to say it. Yeah, Cyberpunk. Um 
and just try to you know uh, deal with what we have on hand. Um, and that is a couple of projects behind the scenes that we've been working on, haven't announced yet too, but we'll probably get to in the next year or so. Beyond that, I you know I I, I don't know like I in building a publishing company like one thing that i've had to learn to do is a lot of the stuff to support the machinations of an actual company right so this past year it was a lot of third-party logistics i had to learn how to work with warehouses how to make things easy for them so that i could automate my shipping and didn't need to do it anymore and that was a huge 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 learning curve to do that and then I had to learn how to get into retail and how to do that. And I've learned a little bit about how to do that. I don't, our books aren't in retail yet, but they will be very, very shortly and learning that landscape and how to do that. And I think that kind of the next step for, for me is I just need to get our stuff out there more, like just more in terms of people knowing about it, people visiting our websites. Like I don't, I want to get to a point with Mythopia where crowdfunding is just another channel as opposed to the main channel of of our revenue stream meaning i want to get our web store up and running more than it is right now in terms of the amount of commerce we do on it i want to get our convention scene up and running a little bit more i want to get into uh hobby stores more so that becomes a revenue stream all, all of these things are kind of things that i'm working on in the short term and then long term for myself my ambition is always to just keep learning and keep doing more but specifically like the arc of my creative career thus far has been like doing everything i loved as a child right so i'm like all right like i want to get back into animation tv film video games someday and you know maybe hopefully the opportunity will present itself once i keep doing this stuff um, and i think it will eventually i'm curious if you have any advice for designers on how they could produce something that's maybe more attractive to publishers, whether they're, you know, big or small. Like what are some key things that you like really hone in on? Invest in art for yourself. And that doesn't necessarily mean spending money. It could mean just finding open source art that really fits with your project that that makes it look really great. It means also getting your layout skills really well honed and making sure that that looks great as well. There, there's a lot that you can do to make make yourself stand out. What doesn't stand out is if you hone too closely to the blades kind of template, right? I think that kind of like looks like a like a blades hack at that point. Not, not that there's anything wrong with, with that, but. I like to see at this point designs that move a little bit further away from that kind of playbook template that, that we're all familiar with, right? And to see new ways of presenting the UX would be really cool. And creating a quick start rule. A polished quick start, I think, is is the model to go to publishers with. If you have a polished quick start, I think that's plenty to go off of. There are a lot of really exciting things happening in the pop art space, chiefly AI generated art, I think is a huge, huge opportunity along with open source art, right? So there's so much stuff that's open source art. There, there are entire dumps of really awesome visual development designers who just open source all their stuff. You just have to look through it, right? You have to look and find what works. And that usually involves digging very, very deep into the interwebs and, and finding these, these troves of, of art 
and seeing what you can use for free licensing wise. Pro Patria Mori, one of our smaller projects, is a good example of that. It uses open source art from World War One, drawn by soldiers at the time, and it, it's it's a beautiful book and one that we're really proud of. Mid Journey, Dali, and other AI generated art prompts. I haven't dug too deeply into their licensing, but from what I understand, at this stage right now, in the early stages, it's pretty open. So what you develop on there, you can probably use. And I think that's a good jumping off point if you're looking to art up your project. And I think it's just the details at the end of the day. Like all the details matter, right? Like it's, you know, you can't tell when the little details by themselves individually, but as a whole, they make a really, really big impression. And that's what it is at the end of the day. When people decide they like something or not, whether something is publishable or not for them, it's honestly like a split second decision. There's nothing more to it. It's like you, we can get real analytical about it, right? But it's at the end of the day, it's like, do I like this enough to want to like get involved with it, right? And like fair or unfair, that's a decision that happens within a millisecond of looking at something. That's kind of what it is, right? So it's just, it's a bit unfair, I guess, sometimes. But what I would say to designers is like, it's the overall presentation of things, right? And it's the overall kind of feel more than any sort of one factor. Um, and that's where the the details matter. And then the other thing I always say to designers, especially is make as many games as possible. You want to get into that design iteration cycle as fast as possible and make as many games as possible like one person one designer that i really admire within our community is uh, michael elliott the designer of merger torch in the dark uh, neon black all of these these games because he's really carved out a niche for himself over the past year where he does a kickstarter for a zine project right that most of them are forged in the dark and they're great they're all like awesome games right he's a great designer and they're, they're not huge games. They're maybe like 20, 30 pages max. But he'll get it done. He'll lay it out. He'll art it up. He'll release it. And then two months later, he's launching another project. You know, and he's done that consistently for like three, four projects now. And I'm just like, wow, that's, that's crazy. That's, that's the hustle that I really respect. And he's built a, a, a notable fan base now. Now he's getting like 500, 600 backers per project. And that's just growing every time he does it, right? I think that's a great model for someone to build their design career off of because he's making enough to, to support himself a little bit, but to support his projects most importantly. And it's growing every time he, he does it. Mm-hmm. That's some good advice. And whenever you talk about art and what and what have you that's a big hot topic well various things you said are big hot topics in in terms of art and role-playing games but to my mind the big one is like some people are concerned about what they can actually do artistically you know on their own without a publisher but my impression of what you got and you can tell me of what you said and you can tell me if this is correct or not is it could be one piece of work that really highlights what your game is about or something like it doesn't have to be a fully illustrated book that's why they would go to you absolutely absolutely if i had to boil it down to one word i would say vision right i want to see your vision for the for the game like i want to see what it is right what what and if it aligns with like what we want to do then boom we're we're, let's talk right but that that's what it is at the end of the day it's like all right what 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 are you trying to get across with with what you're doing, right? And if I can see that clearly, then 
go with for it. Excellent. Thank you, Ray. I really appreciate you coming to talk about Mythopia and about publishing in general. It does sound kind of challenging over this last year and you have my support <laughs> and my appreciation for the work that you've done so far. But as we get towards the end of our program today, I'm wondering if you have anything else that you'd like to plug. Yeah, I do. So first of all, if you're interested in our games, check out our website, www.myth.works. You'll be able to find The Wild Sea, which is available in the US and soon all around the world at the moment. And CBR Cyberpunk, CBR plus PNK Augmented Edition, which is available for pre-order is going to print soon and should be available Q1 of 2023. Also check out my TikTok at Mythopians, M-Y-T-H-O-P-O-E-I-A-A-N-S. That's where I am spending a lot of time socially these days uh, because it just seems to be growing really fast, honestly. And it's kind of addicting. It's kind of fun. That's why I'm there. I mean, and, and y'all out there, I know that the cyberpunk animated series is getting a lot of attention. And it should be noted, you know, this is a property based on a role-playing game that exists. You should go support that. But if you would prefer a quick and easy-to-run game that has all of the vibes of the animated series, but in like a tiny little package, you should definitely look into CBRPNK because it's a really fun game that captures all of that energy in just like a page or two. And it has a fantastic shade of pink if you pronounce it as cyberpunk. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, thank you, Ray. Uh, and thank you to our audience. Goodbye for now. I am Justin of Mothlands Games. And I'm Nichelle of Voidal Space. And on behalf of everyone here at the Fiction First Network, we hope that this episode has inspired some fine blueprints of your very own. <laughs>